And welcome back to this edition of Sports Talk. Doug Miles and uh, Don Henderson with you once again. And uh, tonight, a uh, very special guest. We're going to talk about uh, one of the great broadcasters of all time, one of the great sportscasters of all time as well. And his name is uh, Marty Gleckman. Uh, fans that grew up uh, listening to Nick and Ranger games, Jet games, and just about uh, all the sports in New York between the, uh, I guess, the 40s and uh, into the uh, 80s, early 90s, uh, know the name of Marty Gleckman. But uh, a new book has just come out all about uh, Marty Gleckman. That's who our guest is tonight. Uh, Jeffrey S. Gurak is uh, the author of uh, Marty Glickman, The Life of an American Jewish Sports Legend, and he's a professor of Jewish history at Yeshiva University up in New York. And uh, Jeffrey joined us uh, by telephone for a few minutes tonight. Jeffrey, a great pleasure to have you with us. How are you? Thank you very much. Always a pleasure to talk about uh, Marty Glickman. You know, he was, I'm 73 years old. He was the voice of my youth growing up in New York City. In fact, I sound like him. I have a New York accent, and so did Marty Glickman, but uh, he was very, very special, that's for sure. Well, Jeffrey, I have to agree with you 100%. Uh, I'm 89, so I, I heard Marty Glickman long before you, and uh, just one of the great stories, not only the broadcasting story, but his background in athletics in Syracuse and New York, uh, all the things, every one of the things that he participated in, he was number one. Well, he did, he did 2,000, by his own recollection, he did 2,000 games. And you referenced the Giants, of course, and the Knicks and the Jets. But he also did roller derby. He did professional wrestling. He did the trotters from Yonkers Raceway. He was ubiquitous. And anybody of my age group in New York City and perhaps in your, in your town, too, in Florida, remembers the great calls he made of these, uh, of these games. In fact, i got to tell you, when I played ball as a kid, in the streets, and uh, I made a good basket. I'd yell, swish! I made a basket, <laughs> just like Marty Glickman. And you know, guys, before Marv Albert said yes, and Iron Eagle said book it, and uh, uh, Mike Breen, the contemporary broadcaster of the uh, Knicks, says bang, who are they emulating? They're emulating Marty, and Marty was very special to anyone who was a sports fan, and it was a privilege. One half of the book, guys, was about what he meant to New York sports fans and to national sports fans and one other New York context. Uh, he spent time uh, on Saturdays and on Thanksgiving broadcasting what was known as the high school game of the week. Mm, correct. This was, a, this was a time in the 50s and 60s where there were youth gangs in New York City, and he wanted to give something back to the city and one of the things he did was broadcast the games. But more than the games, at halftime, he'd interview the head of the choir or the GO or the school newspaper because he wanted to make a point to, to New Yorkers that we got a lot of good kids in the city, notwithstanding all the gangs. So when I did the book, a lot of people referenced the fact that they remember Marty Glickman not only from professional and college sports, but also his concern with his beloved city of New York City. So it was an honor and a privilege to do the book. And one other thing, I got a chance to meet contemporary broadcasters like yourselves, and uh, they were all they all were willing and interested to talk to me about their recollections of Monty Glickman. So it was a lot of fun. I've done a lot of books, but this was my most favorite book. Doug, pick it up. I was going to say, uh, Jeffrey, I, I, I didn't – 
uh, wasn't quite around when uh, Marty did the uh, the Knicks and the uh, and the Giants, but I did get to hear him when he did the Jets later on toward the end of his career. And of course, uh, he actually did some games on NBC, uh, I believe, in the uh, in the 80s sometime when I think they, NBC might have done the Olympics, some TV games. And of course, I'd always heard about Marty because Marv Albert always talked about he was his mentor. But Marty really was the guy that uh, probably everybody that's done a game on radio uh, got to give him uh, uh, you know the credit because he really invented how to do play-by-play, particularly basketball, on radio. Well, you, you, you guys are in the industry, so things like the top of the circle, the keyhole, uh, the way he described the movement of the ball, backdoor plays, etc. Prior to his time, you know, Dan passed it to Doug, and Doug passed it to Jeff, and Jeff passed it to Doug. And if you're listening to the radio, you really don't know what's going on. But Marty Glickman was someone who invented the terminology of basketball broadcasting. And as a kid, I'd listen to him at night under the covers with my little transistor radio. So my parents didn't know I was staying up late listening to Marty Glickman. And uh, th- those words stay with, stay with me. In fact, one of his other things he used to say that I used when I played in, in, this, in the schoolyard was good like Needix. <laughs> Needix was the hot dog stand right on the old garden on 49th Street and 8th Avenue where people ate those terrible hot dogs and the <laughs> orange drinks. And they, they hustled upstairs to sit in the balcony. And, guys, if you ever run into someone from New York who says down in the front, down in the front, when you're in the theater or a church or a synagogue, they went to Mass, the old Mass Square Garden. Because if you sat in the first, unless you sat in the first two rows, you couldn't see half of the, half of the court. <laughs> so you'd yell, get down in the front. But if you couldn't get tickets, you listened to Marty Glickman. Well, Jeffrey, let's go back a little bit because uh, the real story, too, of Marty, not only uh, his broadcasting career, and but his life. Uh, graduating uh, from high school in, in New York City and deciding to go to Syracuse, he was an outstanding athlete himself, although not a big guy. But he played football, he played basketball, <clears throat> you know, and, and he was a, uh, an All-American track star within the Olympic Games, and that's really the main story that gets started which was behind the scenes for four years. Right. Well, you know, besides being a sports story, I always tell people that this book is not only about sports. Correct. It's about being a second-generation immigrant, a child of immigrant Jews in New York who tries to make it in the wider world of of America. And he goes to Syracuse University. He's recruited by a Jewish fraternity to go to Syracuse because they believe – that if a great Jewish athlete shows up at Syracuse, and he was great, great track man, very good football player, it will convince people in Syracuse that they should open the doors more widely to Jewish students of all sorts. Well, it doesn't happen. He does go to Syracuse, and he's honored because he brings victory to Syracuse, but there's still a great deal of social anti-Semitism quotas against Jews in that school. So if you don't like sports, this is a metaphor for understanding the condition of Jews in America prior to World War II. But more importantly, as you began to reference, the signal event that most people should remember, and many people do not remember, that 1936 at the Hitler Games in Berlin, he is supposed to run in the last event, a four by 100 meter relay race in front of 80,000 fans in the Berlin Stadium, including Adolf Hitler and all of his coterie of evil people. And the day before the race, he's all set to run. 
he and Sam Stoller, the other Jewish runner, were supposed to run. The day before the race, in walked the coaches, who it turns out happened to be American Nazis. And they tell the team, the Germans are hiding some great runners, so Marty, you're out, and Sam, you're out, and Ralph Metcalf, Ralph Metcalf, you're in, and Jesse Owens, you're going to run again. And Owens gets up to his credit and says, hey, listen, I won three gold medals. I don't need a fourth gold medal. And they tell him in the verbiage of those times, boy, sit down and shut up. So Marty and Sam do not get a chance to run, and it tells us a great deal about how Jews were marginalized during this time period. Guys, this is not a Holocaust story, but it's a prequel in Marty Glickman's own words. He, he's marginalized because he's, he's a Jew, and it's a significant moment in his life. And I guess the only good part about it is 50 years later, he goes back to the stadium where he was marginalized because they're doing a documentary on Jesse Owens. And he walks into the stadium and he looks up to where Hitler had sat and he screams out, I'm still here. We're still here. And you and your guys are dead. And, you know, we're talking during a very difficult time for America, for Israel, for Jews. And the story of the anti-Semitism that he faced in Berlin it resonates, and I'm, and I'm really happy to talk about that today, considering what's going on uh, in the world in 2023. Mm. So that makes Monty Glickman very significant as a Jewish story, not a sports story. And if I may, one other thing about Glickman that's very important. I said at the outset of our little talk here that he sounds like me, a guy from New York with a New York dialect and Sassan accent, and one of his great dreams was to be a nationally recognized broadcaster. And when the NBA started in 1946, actually it started as the BAA, the Basketball Association of America, he was supposed to be the national broadcaster. But the heads of the NBA didn't want him on the air all over the country, where it's Sarasota or Peoria or Los Angeles, because he sounded like, you excuse the expression, a New York Jew. And the saddest part of that story was that the people who marginalized him, the two men who marginalized him, one was named Maurice Padaloff, who was the president of the NBA, and his assistant, Haskell Cohen. If you recognize those names, they were Jews, too. Right. They were so apprehensive about how Jews were seen in America. They said, you know what, Marty, just do New York games. And he never got a chance to be this national broadcaster. When I told that story to Sal Marciano, a proud Italian-American who I grew up with, also an announcer in New York, he said that when he was starting out in the business, they wanted him to change his name because it sounded too Italian. And he never did. And Marty Glickman never changed his name from Glickman to Marty Manning. And years later, Marciano told me, he ran into his boyhood hero, Frank Sinatra, and Sinatra said to him, you know what? We're awfully proud of you because you maintained your identity as an Italian-American. So it's not only a Jewish story, guys. It's an American story. Yep. And uh, Marty Glickman is emblematic of a lot of the problems that uh, uh, Jews faced and other minorities faced. Uh, and, and more importantly, Jesse Owens faced. Because when Jesse Owens comes back to America, 
they have a celebratory dinner. I don't know if you know this story, but it's worth telling. They have a celebratory dinner in the Waldorf Astoria, the great hotel in New York City. They're honoring Jesse Owens. But to get to the main ballroom, he has to go back up the freight elevator. Says a lot about America of that time. And sadly, it says a lot about America even today. So it's a historical book. And it's also, to some extent, a contemporary book that I think people should be aware of. And it troubles me that young people, Jewish young people, Gentile young people, I love them all, don't know the saga of Marty Glickman. So I felt compelled to write about it, not only because I love Glickman as an announcer, but I loved him because he represented so much of the experience of my parents and my grandparents. You know, my grandchildren are fifth-generation Americans, but we date back over 100 years. But questions of acceptance, questions of belonging are very important. And as a historian, that's, that's some of the messages that I want to bring together in the book. And I know Jeffrey, I'm just, uh, just a quick aside on that. Uh, sure. Uh, I, did a, I did a little documentary with Paul Robeson, and uh, it wasn't you know, was only uh, you know, Marty Glickman or Jesse Owens or everybody, uh, you know, Paul Robeson, everybody went up the afraid elevator. They were not allowed to go in the, you know, it was like when, uh, uh, you know, you went to the hotels in, in Las Vegas and all the black entertainers who were, paid all the money they had to sleep in another hotel right. i mean this is that's another right. world that's right it's, we've we listen we've got a long way to go but we've come a long way from those really dark days uh before world war ii and you know one of the great turning points in american history is not a jewish story but when an african-american is allowed to play our national pastime baseball 1947 when jackie robinson becomes the first african-american to uh play Major League Baseball. And I, I read something recently that Ted Williams once said that uh, he wished he had played against Satchel Paige when Satchel Paige was really a great player because he wanted to see what a quality player was all about. And Robinson gets to play baseball two years before Harry Truman desegregates the armed forces of the United States. So all these stories, I, I have to emphasize, are not sports stories. They're American stories. They're about race, about religion, about acceptance. And uh, I, I once had a professor at Columbia where I got my PhD a million years ago. His name was Nathan Huggins, great black, great black historian. And he said, for minority groups, sports are community-defining situations, which meant if you want to see how a group is doing, see if they're allowed to play Major League Baseball or compete in the Olympics. And the main instigator, by the way, uh, against Glickman in 1936 was an evil man named Avery Brundage. And your listeners should know that 36 years later, after Berlin, the Olympic Games returned to Germany, the Serene Games of Munich, and 11 Israeli athletes are murdered by Palestinian terrorists. Mm. And the head of the International Olympic Committee, Avery Brundage, the same fellas, after one day of mourning the death of these Israelis, of these Jews, says the games must go on. So there's a focus on Avery Brundage. And when, and when Glickman gets to that stadium, he says, God damn that Avery Brundage. I'm here and you're not there anymore. So it was a moment of triumph 
but it was also a very painful experience for Glickman that resided in the bosom of his heart his, ent- his entire life. I was going to ask you. And one more thing about Yeah, go ahead. Now, no, no, no. I, I can go on forever. I was going to say, uh, recently uh, well, I read a book. Was he bitter about it? I mean, did it kind of, I mean, was he bitter or did he just angry, obviously, but was he bitter? He, he was bitter. He was angry. But like, it's, it's a great question, by the way. It's a great question. Because like Jews of that generation, of my parents' generation, when they encountered anti-Semitism, they kept it inside their hearts. They didn't speak out about anti-Semitism. When he was asked in 36, what happened to you? Oh, he says, well, this was politics, nepotism. But as he grew older, he became more openly articulate about what happened to him. And he saw himself at the end of his life. He died uh, at age 83 in 2001. He saw himself as a teacher, a teacher, and he traveled the country working for the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum teaching the next generation about what happened to him and the scourge of racism and anti-Semitism. Unfortunately, by that time, Jesse Owens, his friend, had passed away. But he felt that at the end of his life, he must tell his story to the next generation. And guys, I never met Marty Glickman. I never met him personally. But at the end of the book, I tell a story that as a professional historian, I was supposed to moderate a... a, uh, a meeting with with Marty Glickman under the auspices of the American Jewish Historical Society, and I was going to tell him what he meant to me. Unfortunately, Glickman was too ill to attend, and a few weeks later he passed on. But I feel in a sense that although I didn't meet Glickman, I knew Glickman, and I end the book by saying that his legacy lives on, and I'm just happy that I was a guy who got a chance to tell people about a very significant life, a very significant American life, sports life, and Jewish life. And that's who I am, and that's who who he was. So uh, I feel very privileged to have had a chance to do this book. Doug? Jeffrey, I, I know you said we'd do about 20 minutes. Just one more question for me and Don, if you want to wrap it up when, when I'm done. But uh, uh, just kind of what you talked about right there, or having a, a seminar with Marty that you were going to uh, moderate. Uh, there was going to be a, uh, uh, I think, a roundtable discussion at the Museum of Broadcasting, a, a tribute to Marty Glickman. This was back in uh, 2001, and uh, unfortunately it was set for September uh, the 11th. And I was going to go to that. Of right, we don't know right. what happened, but uh, yeah, a lot, lot of great tributes to Marty. Uh, obviously, didn't happen, and he died uh, in 2001. But uh, Don, I'll let you kind of finish up. Right. Well, the other thing was, I think Brundage. They finally. Uh, it took a lot of years, as you said, Jeffrey. You know, when they went back, but everybody knew from the very beginning his uh, his ideas and his concerns and his what he thought about Jewish people and. How he wanted us to uh, stop everybody from entertaining or, you know, putting them up in front. And uh, what happened in the Olympic Games was just for one of 35 years later, he was still the same guy, still still as, still as uh, uh, strong against everything as he was when Marty Glickman was taken out of the Olympic Games. He never changed. Absolutely. He was, uh, he was a devotee of the German-American Bund. After the Olympics, he comes back and he, he speaks at a rally in Madison Square Garden, and he talks about those people 
who aren't really Americans, these scribes, almost like the, uh, the Jews are outsiders of America, and he was emblematic of that generation. I know we're short on time, but I must tell you one other quick story. Yeah, A few weeks ago, the USC track team went to uh, Auschwitz on a consciousness-raising tour, and a rabbi in Los Angeles referenced my book to them when he spoke about contemporary anti-Semitism. And the interesting part, the significant part, and the warming part for me was one of the coaches, Cromwell of USC, conspired with Avery Brundage to keep Glickman off the race. And now in 2023, the same, the same college, USC, great track team, they are educated by my book about this experience and look how things have changed. So for all the difficulties that we have in America today, I remain optimistic and the fact that you can use my book to teach contemporary people about the past and hopefully about the future in positive terms is something that makes me feel awfully good for having written this book. Well, Jeffrey, uh, we'll say this, that Doug and I have interviewed a lot of people over the years uh, on our particular show. Uh, you're the most interesting, the most informative, uh, the best guest I think we've ever had. And I am certainly very, very happy that I saw the piece in the New York Post that we could get a hold of you. And I'll let Doug close out the show, but I just want to say it was a great half hour of conversation. Well, thank you very much. It's it's a pleasure and an honor to be to be on your show. That's for sure. And Jeffrey, uh, let me give the title one more time: Marty Glickman, The Life of an American Jewish Sports Legend. I, I believe it's NYU Press. Is that right? Or where, where can people get it? NYU Press is my publisher. Yes, available on Amazon and at your better bookstores. <laughs> great. We'll also have a <laughs> but link certainly on our through website. Amazon. Yeah. Well, Jeffrey, pleasure that would talking be great. to you. That would be... And uh, anytime we Don and I get a chance to talk about broadcasting, uh, we we jump on it. And I'm glad you were able to jump on the phone with us today. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much, guys. My pleasure. Meanwhile, Pat typically is facing out towards center field, facing out towards the open end of Shea Stadium. He has his hands on his hips. He has his head down. He is not looking at the uprights at the closed end of Shea, where he will be kicking that football in just a few moments. Leahy beat them last year here, 30-27. to 27. Maybe he'll do it again. We'll find out in just a moment. Play about to be resumed. The ball will be spotted down at the 23-yard line, meaning it's a 33-yard field goal attempt. The angle is virtually straight ahead. Signals are being called. Now they're set. The ball is snapped, placed down, it's kicked high enough, deep enough. It's no good! It is no good! It is wide to the left! And the most unhappy man in America has to be Pat Leahy. Moving up on the outside, Brett Hanover is spot. They go to three quarters and one thirty and four fifths. And in the last turn, Sweet Luck is in front. Cardigan Bay going up on the outside, a second by Anek. Along the inside, fire sweep is third. Brett Hanover moving up on the outside, a close-up fourth. Adios marches his fifth. Here they are at the head of the stretch. It's Sweet Luck along the rail, Cardigan Bay, and a length behind Cardigan Bay. That's Brett Hanover. Cardigan Bay is in front. 